We have been in a journey through the book of Genesis and we will continue in the weeks and the months ahead, but we're excited to come to kind of a a junction, uh, another junction in the series, looking at the life of Abraham. Uh, Well, first of all, before we get into Abraham, I want to talk, I want to ask you a question. Who was or is your superhero in, in, in growing up? All right, maybe it's even right now as you are a grown-up. Last night, playing in the background of the house, was Captain America Civil War. Uh, I cannot tell you a single plot line about it, uh, but I can tell you this, that it's about superheroes. I can tell you that much, all right? And I don't know what your superhero is, what uh, what you dream or aspire to be, but... The thing about superheroes is they have this ordinary side and then they have this superhero side. And sometimes the superhero side kind of gets the biggest play. It's kind of like when they're, when you see them in a movie script, you see them or on, a, on a billboard, you see them in their superhero state. But there is another state that they exist. It's their common everyday state. It's that Superman, Superman, Clark Kent. He was this timid newspaper guy, okay, who was in love with Lois Lane, I think is the, is the person. And so, you know, again, there's this, there's this superhero, but then there is this common ordinary person. Uh, whenever you come to Spider-Man, this is the guy that can walk up the side of a building of a skyscraper and catch you in his web, uh, and capture the bad guys. But yet he was a photographer, uh, Parker, um, Peter Parker, I think is his name. Uh, clearly I know all of my superheroes. I have to look, rely on my notes, right? Uh, and then there's Wonder Woman. There's Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman. Again, if you go back to the comic version of her, she was a nurse back when she was originally invented, but in the later version, she's more of an ambassador. Again, you have this ordinary person and then you have this extraordinary person. Whenever you come to Bible character studies like an Abraham, sometimes we want to lump them into this extraordinary person, but we forget the ordinary side of who they were. We kind of miss that, that, that part of the connection. They were ordinary people. They struggled with the same things that you and I struggle with. And sometimes they fall more often than we fall. And so I don't want to bloat them up as something that they're not, but I also want to learn from them and be inspired by them and what they did and how they lived their life in so many ways. And that is Abraham. Abraham was considered a prince of God. He was also considered a friend of God. He was also, uh, the person who lied. He was the person who had a problem trusting God thoroughly all the way through. But yet he's in the hall of faith. When you go to the book of Hebrews, we find in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to finish Genesis story of Abraham by looking in the book of Hebrews uh, today. But Abraham wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. And I want you to see that about these superheroes of the faith and that they are not perfect. But really what makes them great and superheroes in my mind is that they were faithful. In fact, as we've read through Genesis so far, you find several of the people in Genesis that we've read through, you find them in Hebrews chapter 11. Again, the hall of faith, as I will call it. And when you find it, you find people like Noah. Noah is the superhero. There's so much given to Noah in Genesis, second only to Abraham. That's how much is given in a number of texts and pages written and verses given to the life of Noah. But yet Noah had an alcohol problem and ends up embarrassing the family. 
You, you look at Abraham and he was a liar and he had cover-up issues and, and he, he, he had a generational sin that gets passed down to Isaac and Jacob. And what we do in moderation, the next generation does in excess. So it's an incredible dichotomy that goes on here between these heroes and yet they're also zeros sometimes. You got Rahab, the harlot. Rahab, who's a recovering sex worker, is in Hebrews chapter 11. You got people like Samson who struggle with women and pride, and yet he's a superhero in some respects when you find him in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. But when you look at Hebrews 11, it is really, you cannot study Hebrews 11. And And I mentioned this last week at the end of my message. I just want to kind of restate it again today in that Hebrews 11 is only read through the lens of Hebrews 12. You can't read Hebrews 11 and end there. You've got to go to Hebrews 12. And so just for context, let's understand why we read, why we read these superheroes. Why do we read about Abraham? Why is it worthy of studying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as we will be studying and even Joseph in the weeks ahead? It's because therefore in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, who are these witnesses? These witnesses are the people that went before us. They modeled the way for us. Again, ups and downs and all arounds. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us. So he's calling us to action now. Let us. He says it twice there. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not looking to these heroes that have fallen, but actually looking to Jesus the perfecter of the faith. He's actually the one who never failed. So don't, I mean, gain inspiration, gain instruction, look back at Abraham, but don't look for him for his perfection or try to point out his imperfections. Look to Jesus, the perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we look at the, Hebrew, he, the, the heroes of the faith, let us focus our attention on the perfecter of the faith. But when you look at Abraham, what do we learn from Abraham? How are we inspired by Abraham? Again, we see an ordinary person that God uses to do extraordinary things. And he makes this incredible promises to him. And when you go back to Hebrews 11 now, and you read through Hebrews 11 on your own, you're going to find again and again and again, there's going to be one particular statement that's going to be made. It's going to be made 18 different times. You count them and tell me if I missed one or two, Uh, but 18 different times, he's going to say by faith. And every one of those by faiths is a, is almost a hinge of the door. In which that person's life swings on. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. By faith, Rahab. By faith. And he goes on and on and on through the, the book of Hebrews 11. And the, the key is that that is the, the, the essence of it. But the focus can become about faith when you're reading that. I even called it the hall of faith. You heard me say that earlier. But really, the focus is not on the faith. The focus is on chapter 12, verse 1. The perfecter of the faith. The focus is not on faith, and that's very important to understand because 17 of the 18 times that by faith is used, it's used, and I'm going to go into my Greek geek mode here for just a moment, it's used in the dative case. The dative case is an indirect object. It always is in the dative, it's an indirect object. So the object is not faith. 
There's a lot of people who say you just need to have more faith. That faith becomes the object. Faith becomes the focus. That is not what we're talking about here. Faith in faith is not the, the focus. The, the, the focus is, again, Jesus, the perfecter of the faith. But what we need to do is we need to see it as an indirect object that it actually complements us as we move into faith. That faith, not in faith, but faith in who? In God, in Jesus. And when we have that faith in Jesus, we'll find ourselves stronger than ever before. But the focus, hear this, is not faith. Faith is the fuel that drives the engine. See, it's not the size of your faith that God is looking for. It's the size of your God that matters most. The size, let me say that again. The size of your faith is not what's most important. It's the size of your God that's the most important. Even Jesus said, you can have the faith of the grain of a mustard seed. And yet you can call this mountain be removed. And so again, it's not the size of your faith, it's the size of your God. And he's bringing us back to that. But at the same time, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith is certainly an avenue in which. And so when you look at this friendship that, that, that Abraham models for us with God, notice his faith. In fact, you'll notice in the passage of Hebrews 11, and by the way, in Hebrews 11, you count them up again. Here's another challenge for you. Who gets more attention in Hebrews 11 out of all these people that are named and some are not even named out of all these people, Abraham gets the lion's share of the attention. There are more verses, more pages, more, more, more words given to Abraham's faith. So we're learning from a person who struggled with his faith, but was an example in the faith for us. And he had this friendship with God. And as we look at this friendship with God, what does it do? What does it mean to have a faith friendship with God? I think when you look at these four different times we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 11, four different times between he and faith, uh, faith of Abraham and the faith of Sarah and Abraham, it will swing. You will see the word by faith. That will be the outline of the message today. Four empowering qualities, if you will, to what it means to have a friendship faith with God. Not just a faith. Faith in faith is not it. A friendship kind of faith with God. Not a religion, a faith in a religion. No, no, no. Faith that results in a friendship with God. What does that look like, feel like? What does that do to you and I in our relationship with God? And one is it moves me. It moves me out into the unknown. I, I, I get to be okay with not having all the answers, which is not easy for me. Faith that is not moving you, Faith that is not challenging you, faith that is not calling you up and out, it's not really faith. In fact, the Bible says faith without works, Paul, uh, James said, faith without works is dead. So we've got to have a faith that moves me. Notice again in Hebrews chapter 11. I want us just to see the very first part of this verse before we read the last part of the verse. And Abraham, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. Stop right there. I wonder, could you put your name where Abraham's name is? By faith, Mike obeyed when he was called. 
If that's all that you were, if it was on you and it was your story being told here today, can you say that, yes, by faith, I obeyed when I was called? Or did I debate God? Whatever God called me to do. See, again, what happens whenever you're in a faith friendship relationship with God, it will move you. You, Henry Blackaby says, you cannot go with God and stay where you are. Where is God moving in your life? By faith, Abraham obeyed God when he called. To go, where did he go? Go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, I love this statement and yet scared to death of this statement. And when he went out, he did not know where he was going. Well, that sounds like poor planning on his part. No, it's faith walking. Faith will move you. It will move you into the unknown. A faith relationship with God, when you have a, I don't care how big your faith is, how big is your God? You got a big God? Go with him. Go with him. Whatever that next step of obedience, go with him. Even if you don't know what's going to happen on the other side of that, go with him. In fact, this is just the common calling of God. If you don't, if you don't get it now and get it later, you're going to get it sometime if you're going to really enter into this relationship with God because this is exactly what Jesus did when he's walking along the, the seashore with the, James and John. They're standing there. What does he say? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. What do they do? They leave their nets and they follow him. He didn't tell them all. He didn't tell them where they were going to go. He didn't tell them they were going to suffer. He didn't tell them they were going to walk all all across Galilee. He didn't tell them everything, the plan, the five-year plan, the three-year plan, that he was going to die and that he was going to leave them and that they were going to take over the kingdom work and he was going to give them the keys to the kingdom. He didn't tell them the plan. They just had to follow. They had to be willing to move where God was moving. Matthew was a tax collector working for Rome, a traitor of the Jewish people. Levi was his name at the time. All he said was, follow me. Notice the theme. Follow me. There's other people that Jesus calls. In Luke chapter 9, verse 59, you read that for yourself, that a person God calls but yet had too many other things to do. It was a preoccupied person. He says, God, or Jesus, let me first go do this. Let me first go do this. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. It's like, he's not, God doesn't play around here. It's not like I'm preoccupied, God, I'll get to you whenever I get to you. No, no, no. When he's the Lord, then he's in charge, and he's your God, then he, you follow his leadership. There's other times whenever he calls people. And this is why I, don't, I cannot believe in irresistible grace. There's other times when he calls people. He calls, him, calls a rich man, take everything he has, sell it, give it to the poor, and follow me. Why? He knew that that rich man loved his money more than he loved Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he wanted to follow Jesus right after he followed his money. See, the reality is that that is not God's role. He says, calls us to follow me. What does it mean to follow me? What does it mean to step out in faith and to move with God? It means a couple of things. One, it means I don't know, but I'm okay. I don't know, fill in the blank. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where the end of this is. I don't know where my income will be. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. I don't, I don't know who's going to be there on the other side. I don't know what kind of opposition is going to be out there. I don't know, but I'm okay. That is a person walking by faith. And also, number two, and this may be the hardest of them all, is, is I'm not in control. If you have to be in control, you're probably not ready to follow Jesus. 
To be in control means you are the God of your story. All along, I've said from Genesis, this is not a story about us. It's a story about God and how we fit into his story. And the sooner we get to that, that narrative, the better off we will be. If you'll notice, whenever God called Abraham, he just stepped out into not knowing. See, the very first thing we do when we hear God's inkling, that next step, whatever that next step is, is you just got to obey it. And I've shown you this circle of trust, if you will. And again, this is not meet the Fokker circle of trust, but um, this is, you start with obedience. Obedience moves to experience. As I step out, I'm going to experience things about God. I'm going to experience things about his character. I'm going to experience the depth of God that I had not known before, which is going to lead to my knowledge of God is going to grow, which is going to lead to my relationship with God is going to go even deeper. That's a beautiful thing. And then you go right back to the top. Guess what? This is going to be the circle of your life or the circle of the rest of your life if you're going to follow Jesus. Now, some people, they can't even get on the obey track. And so they will never know and they will never experience and they will never deepen their relationship. But if there's anything you want to gather from the life of Abraham, gather this next chart. Because every time Abraham obeyed God, he experienced God, he knew God better, deeper into his life. Every time in, this, in these passages, now count them up if you will, there are nine experiential times in the life of Abraham when he experiences God because he obeys God. And when he obeys God, his deeper knowledge of God happens in him. And all of a sudden, he has a new name for God. What does name mean? What's a big, big deal about it? Name represents character. He understood the character of God deeper. In the beginning, he understood that God in the initial calling of God, that you are Yahweh God. That's the highest name for God to this day. The Hebrews will not say it. They will say the word Adonai in place of Yahweh. And then whenever he goes off to war and he's fighting against, if you remember the, the, the four kingdoms and, and he, he, with 300 men, whacks them gone uh, hundreds of miles to the north. And what does he learn through that? Because every one of those kingdoms, the five kingdoms that the four beat up on, and then the four that Abraham and his 300 men beat up on, is that he learned this. Every one of those kingdoms had a God. But what he learned in that experience is that there is a most high God. <laughs> that's what he experienced is that he was the most high God. He also learned on that journey of faith that he, I am, that God is his shield. He came back. He lived through this fighting for kingdoms. He comes back realizing, Hey God, you protected me in that season. That's a beautiful thing. He would have never experienced it had he stayed underneath the trees of Mamre. And had he just stayed underneath, hanging out in his hammock, never, he never would have experienced God at that level. I'm just telling you, when you move with God, God just shows up and he shows out and he, you, you understand him deeper. Nine times in 11 chapters or devoted to Gen, in Genesis or devoted to Abraham, nine times in 11 chapters, his relationship with God goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It's beautiful. I like what it's, the way the message puts Romans chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. Paul summarizes the life of Abraham this way. He did not tiptoe around God's promise. Asking cautiously skeptical questions, he plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, 
sure that God would make good on what he said. God moves us when we're friendship with him. He also calms us. We get to be okay. We get to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Okay? He calms us in the midst of, of life. There's a slide for that. Yeah, there you go. Let's look at, let's look at down at verse, uh, verse 9. And you go on and, and you read in chapter 11. And it says, by faith. Again, everything swings on a hinge of by faith. By faith, he went and he lived in the land of promise. Not the land of reality. It's only a promise. A promise is not something that you have. A promise is something you hope for. So he's not living in the land of reality. He's living in the land of promise. In a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and, the, and Jacob and the heirs with him in the same promise. In verse 10, he says, For he's looking forward to a city that was a foundation of, those, uh, of whose designer and builder is God. I want you to understand something about Abraham. When he was called out, and he moved out with God. He did not move into some plush comfort situation. He moved out in faith into the unknown to become a foreigner in a land that he would never ever in the entire length of his life, no matter how long he lived in this land, never did he gain citizenship. He was always an immigrant. He was always a foreigner. He never put roots in the ground. He never, he lived in a tent. Every time you, you see Abraham mentioned in Genesis, he's always referred to as a sojourner. He's a foreigner. How comfortable is that? But yet God promised him he was going to give him the land in Genesis chapter 12 and the initial calling, right? You remember that? Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give you this land. If that wasn't enough, he repeats it again in chapter 13. For all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. 62 years later, Sarah dies. 62 years later, Sarah dies. And they still are foreigners, immigrants in a land that God said he was going to give them. They're still living in a tent. They still don't own property. They still haven't put roots down. How do I know that? Because when Sarah died, he has to go, Abraham has to go to the Hittites and ask for land to bury his wife. And this is what it says in Genesis 23, verse 3 and 4. It says, And Abraham rose up before, uh, his, uh, before his dead, his wife, and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you, the burying place, that I may bury my dead. I want you to understand, he never got comfortable. He always lived as a foreigner. He always lived as a sojourner, but so did Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen, but yet he gave up his Roman citizenship to become a citizen of heaven. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it I await, uh, await a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham and Paul both had the mentality that I'm not living for this world. My kingdom is not of this world. My residence is not of this world. My residence is far off from this place. Remember what it said in verse 12. He was looking for a city that the builder had built, that, that God would build. 
says, I'm looking forward to a city of the foundations whose designer and builder is God. So even then, Abraham is already thinking big picture future. Listen, he's living in a world on a passport of another country. He's living very nomadically. He's not tied to this world. I, uh, I wonder if we all lived in Northwest Arkansas as sojourners. If we all lived in our lives as sojourners, I wonder if we would live differently. I wonder if we would see immigrants differently. I wonder if we would invest our money differently. The Bible talks more about investing in heaven than it does investing in our own homes. I wonder if we would view our citizenship as Americans differently. I know missionaries that have gone to places in this world that they cannot go on an American passport. They would not be welcomed into the country, but they gave up. Listen to this. They gave up their American passport, took on another nationality, and go and move to a land so that they could share the gospel. How in the world would anybody? The passport is who you are, his identity. Abraham's identity, Paul's identity, uh, they were okay with being uncomfortable. Number three, satisfies me. He satisfies me. He, He moves us. He calms us so that I can move out in faith. But he also satisfies us. In a world of instant gratification, this is really hard to conceptualize. Raymond Edmond, former president of Wheaton College, wrote a book called The Disciplines of Life. It's out of print. I looked it up this morning on Amazon. If you want to buy me a copy, there's one hard copy out there for $537. All right? Needs to be reprinted, I think. He introduces a phrase. It's called the discipline of delay. The discipline of delay. He said, so much in our world of instant gratification. If you don't have it, you go buy it. If you don't even have the money to to buy it, you go charge it to get it. We live in a world of instant gratification, but yet a discipline of delay is maybe something that we need to learn. We have been told God's disappointments are, are, are his appointments, that God's delays are not his denials. Delay with its apparent destruction of all hope can be deep discipline to the soul. Let me say that again. Delay, with its apparent destruction of all hope, can be a deep discipline of the soul that would serve the Lord Jesus. We live in a restless, impatient day. We have little time for preparation and less for meditation and worship. The discipline of delay is written large in the life of God's people, as we can observe in Abraham's long-awaiting for the son of promise. See, God calls us to delay. He calls us to wait. And that's exactly what you see with Abraham and Sarah. It says in verse 11, by faith, again, everything's swinging on by faith. Sarah herself received the power to conceive. And even then, when she had passed the age, since she had considered him faithful to be promised, therefore from one man, now notice this next phrase, And him as good as dead. That's how they described Abraham. He was as good as dead. Were born descendants in many of the stars of the heaven. In many of the innumerable grains of the the sand. By the seashore. Now I want to key in on that phrase. As good as dead for just a second. 
Because it's not only used here in Hebrews, but it's also used in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, to describe Abraham. And did not, notice this next phrase, he did not weaken in faith. His faith was strong, was vile, was, 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 uh, was able and capable and, and had resiliency about it. His faith was there when he considered his own body, which was good as dead. The Greek word, dunatos, it means that he was unable. It means that he had an inability. Now, without going into the birds and the bees, he's a hundred-year-old man, and they don't have purple pills back then. Literally, that's what it's saying. He was unable. She was clearly unable in her age. But God was able. Remember, it's not the size of your faith. It's the size of your God. God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. The thing is, is that some people never even got it. Abraham never lived in this land and owned that land. It says in verse 13, these all died in the faith, not having received the things promised. How would you like to live your life? And not receive all the promises. Would that cause you to get mad at God? Give up on God? Notice the incredible resiliency. That they live out their life. And yet he didn't receive everything. But he never gave up on his faith. In God. He never gave up on his God. One more. That empowers us as we prioritize me. It puts things in its right order. It gets things in its right order. I give... God, and this is a commitment you've heard me say it if you've been around Grace Point any length of time, I give God the first day out of every week, the first week, uh, the first moments out of every day, the first dime out of every dollar, the first consideration in every decision. He's got to be first because what if you're not first, you're second, and if you're not second, you're first loser. God will not be first loser. He will only be first. What does your time tell you about your relationship with God? What does your money tell you about your relationship with God? Lori and I made a commitment that we wanted the largest check, the largest draft out of our account every month to be the check, the the, the amount that we give to Grace Point. Why is that? Because we don't want any doubt in our minds, in our hearts, that what is first and foremost in our life. Sad part is some people's green fees, their latte coffees, their club memberships are more important than anything else. What is it? See, what happens when you have to prioritize things in this relationship of faith, things begin to get shifted around. And again, go back to Genesis 22. We talked about this on May 30th, a message related to Abraham offering up Isaac. And this is what God said. He said, take your son, your only son, and that you whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. And then come again to the last time by faith, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promise and the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though Isaac shall be an offering, offspring, be named. He considered, Abraham considered that God was able to even raise him from 
the dead. I can't re-preach that message from May 30th. You back, go back and listen to it, but it's all about prioritization. God took, said, take your only son, your son, your, your, your most prized son, your favorite son, and I want you to be willing to put him on the altar. The son was never truly at threat with God. But Abraham had to put his most precious, valuable thing on the altar. What is your most precious, valuable thing that needs to be put on the altar to prioritize your relationship with God? He believed in the gospel before the gospel was ever lived out. That God would raise him from the dead. God had power over death. Abraham was believing that before it ever happened. What is the object of your faith? Is it your faith in yourself? Is it faith in faith? Or is it your faith in God? I don't care how big or small it is, you have a big God. He will move you. He will calm you. He's going to challenge you. But he's also going to be right there with you as you prioritize and give your life fully and completely to him. Would you bow your heads with me? Abraham was far from perfect. You're far from perfect. I'm far from perfect. Oh, but what God wants to do in you and through you is beautiful and amazing. Will you be open to that? What is your next step? So where do you go from this? What's your next step of obedience? What's the next thing that God's called you to do that you haven't yet done? you're holding back on. Listen, you can't go with God and stay where you're at. Father God, you know our hearts. Speak clearly to us. May we live as friends with you, God. But may we be faith friends. We can't see you, touch you physically with our hands. But God, it seems as if you speak directly to us sometimes louder than anything else Father will we obey you so that we can experience you so that we can know you God so that our relationship with you will be forever changed what is our next step of obedience God in Jesus name we pray Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?